Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. On today's episode of the Law Down Under podcast, I am lucky and privileged to have with me Aaron Hunt, who is a partner at Stace Hammond. Uh, Aaron is an expert in immigration law, technology law, internet law, and social media. He has a passion for helping people protect themselves online and to understand how the laws of the digital world impact on them. He is a board member of the Dignity Freedom Network, which is a non-profit organization focusing on improving access to education and restoring dignity and freedom to marginalised children and women. In 2021, Aaron was awarded the Top Diverse Board Ready Director by the Super Diversity Institute for Law, Policy and Business. Today, we're going to be talking to Aaron about the law of the internet and social media. We'll consider different types of threats that exist online, whether in New Zealand's current legal framework is sufficient to keep up with the ever-developing world of technology. Uh, we also discuss the ways in which both individuals and businesses can protect themselves online, and I do hope that you'll enjoy this episode of the podcast with Aaron Hunt. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Good, thanks, Chris. Good oh, to be here. It's, it's great to have you here, and what a great topic to talk about, the law of the internet. I think, first of all, let's just talk about what is the internet? I mean, everyone will have their own idea what the internet is, mainly to the effect of, you know, to the extent it affects them. But but how do you look at the internet? What would you how would you describe it? The internet is it is that basically that network of networks. I think we'll see most people looking at well web pages or the apps on their phone and saying well that's the internet. But it sort of goes beyond so much more of that. Is that our communication, our phone calls? If you make a phone call now, even on a landline, that's going over the internet. Um, it is now so entrenched in our lives that generally everything you do that has an electronic component is on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's everywhere. It's every part of everything we do now. Oh, look, it's all invasive. I mean, uh, any parent that's got teenagers will know the absolute chaos and the end of the world that occurs when the uh, when the Wi-Fi goes down or the, the modem's not connecting. It's uh, it, it really is the end of the world, isn't it? Oh, it really is. Even myself, you know, I'm, I'm not, no longer a teenager uh, past that. <laughs> but if I was away from the internet for more than probably a day, I think I'd be missing out on, on the rest of the world. I, I, it is that need to be, for me, to be connected, to see what's going on in the world and always being knowing what's going on. I think it's hard to sort of disconnect these days. Yeah, it certainly has become something that's almost essential to, to like even the practice of law now. It's kind of hard to imagine practicing law without uh, being somehow connected to the internet. Now, look, Tell me, um, how did you get involved? Like, how does someone decide, I, I want to specialise in and become interested in, in, in the law uh, of the internet or, or how the law intersects with the internet? I came out of university um, the first time with a science degree, a Bachelor of Science doing pure science, but looking at how systems work and how yeah. systems can integrate with uh, the greater world. And I went and spent uh, several years in London uh, re-engineering what we, we, we now call disruption of the industry, uh, the insurance industry, and working with them on improving how they did things, using technology, uh, that sort of thing. So 
I did that for several years. I uh, came back to New Zealand, realised that I really missed the stress of London. I, I enjoyed stress in my work. I thought, oh, I'll go be a lawyer. You know, childhood dream, watching <laughs> LA Law. You know, that, that guy walking around uh, the courtroom. You know, things that aren't uh, Arnie, so true. Arnie Becker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. um, went and did my law degree in my late 20s. Um, started working as a lawyer for a, a small boutique uh, franchise law firm. But I had this background. I could you know, program in several languages. I knew how systems work. I knew how the internet worked in the actual pure code and the connection, the networking of it. So I had this, this information that most lawyers didn't have, and it sort of made sense to be involved in that area. Uh, I had a fascination for systems already from my first degree, and that you know, the internet was the greatest of all systems. So I sort of went from there, working with clients who were in that area and that space and franchising and worked more and more with those tech clients, um, eventually getting into the area where I'd see div, uh, laws coming through, like the Harvard um, Communication Act and like, things like areas where I knew how the systems work they were inter inter interacted with, and it made sense for me to push in that direction. Um, and I loved it. Okay. I, I love so, those areas. So um, so if I've got this right, as part of your tertiary studies, uh, you, you learned a bit of coding. I learned how to code in, um, I knew how to, I taught myself basic when I was about five or six. And then I learned, as you do when you're five do, or six. Yeah. <laughs> I had a computer, I had to learn how to, how to know how to do funny things to this, so I learned how to code. Yeah. Um, at university, I learned Java, I learned um, a bit of VB, I learned um, JavaScript. Um, Lint COBOL, which was kind of useless. It was very old. Um, well, it's even more useless now. <laughs> it was the last year they taught it. Um, yeah. Banks still used it at the time. But I learned like four or five languages. But all, yeah. more so as I learned how these things interacted. I learned how the databases worked, how the systems were interconnected, um, which meant that I was, I was always a horrible programmer, but I yeah. could design these systems and work out how they worked pretty effectively, which led me to understand how the internet worked um, at the back end as well as the front end and at the, you know, how it all works uh, technology-wise, but also human-wise. Yeah. So, I mean, because the internet has certainly uh, evolved, if that's a way of putting it from, I, I guess, when you and I, because we're of a similar vintage, when we started our tertiary studies, um, very few computers were actually even, you know, interconnected. Um, possibly connected within um, a computer lab, but not necessarily connect, connected beyond the university itself. Um, and but w w you know we 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 went through a, a, an education system that then uh, saw the cutting edge of that development. And I mean, of course, you've seen that um, right from a, a front end. But you've then gone off and entered into law, and you would have then uh, probably started you know probably around about the same time I did, where we still had. Uh, w peoples, um, you know, mainly staff working, uh, sitting next to each other, literally typing up uh, documents that authors had dictated in an analog format, um, uh, etc. I mean, people still sent letters, um, like via post. You know, the, there was a mailroom in law firms. You know, literally thousands of dollars was spent every day for the cost of stamps. Um, so you've seen that development come through. Lawyers are Luddites by default. Um, we don't <laughs> like change. And whenever I see, I see people come to me saying, hey, we've got this great new product, I'm like, yeah, they probably won't pick it up because it's going to change how they do something. You know, lawyers still fax. Mm. Um, and I think that's well, a bit of an embarrassment really for, for any industry that you still use as a fax machine, mm. uh, especially when they sort of fax and then email it so you can read the document they faxed you in the first place. It yeah. just makes no sense. Um, so we were probably well behind the eight ball in that we were still using, you know, still typing things out, still using dictation devices, still having staff write out things for us. And you see people, um, see lawyers sending a memo to a staff member to send a memo by email to staff to do something. It's like, well, why don't you mm. just email them? 
Yeah. It's well, going to take you 10, 15 minutes to do that, to send a minute to send an email. You have emails there. You know, mm-hmm. you, but it's just that habit, and we don't like that change. We don't like technology to any sort of degree. So I was sort of one of the outliers, uh, as you are, that sort of mm-hmm. loved this technology and loved what we were doing and saw the advantages that were there um, and in an untapped market effectively. Great. Okay, well, let's now talk about a legal framework. Um, so uh, in terms of governance and regulation, New Zealand domestically is still trying to find its way through um, how we can best, you know, regulate um, or provide laws for for the internet. And I mean, it's, in some ways, some have suggested, well, that's a complete waste of time. I mean, there's no point trying to regulate or create laws for the internet. Um, one, um, I mean, there is one theoretical model called, you know, governance by the law. and um, Judge uh, Easterbrook, this, uh, I take this from um, David Harvey's book, uh, Internet. You know, uh, yeah, the law of the internet, where where he he quotes Judge Easterbrook as saying, you know, there's no more of a law of cyberspace than there is a law of the horse. And then, in essence, what the theory is is it's just you just apply the rule of law to the people using the internet, and and that's enough. You don't need regulation. Um, the existing law is here. It's been around for centuries. Um, the internet doesn't change anything. What's your, what's your views on that? I'm pretty, pretty in favour of that approach. Um, we saw in some early cases the um, tort of trespass used for um, hacking, yeah. um, and it, it applied well. It, it actually worked in this situation, um, and same thing when we have, with sort of interjurisdictional stuff, we have shipping law, which mm. can be applied in a lot of situations, not always perfectly. But if you get your mind away from it's digital, it must be different, and actually start looking at the components, you actually start seeing that the, the current established law of these torts will often apply quite nicely to, to the law. It doesn't mean there's not a need to perhaps make new legislation, but perhaps not in the great panic we sometimes see, this sort of you know, quick, let's react on something, um, but then ironically still take three or four years to do it. Um, and get a result that doesn't actually work when there's often already is taught or case law that actually could be applied in lots of situations. Yeah, well, look, you're right. I mean, there's there's plenty of examples. I'm just thinking of um, the law of defamation. I mean, it's been around for centuries it's to protect reputations. Um, there's the famous Victorian case in Australia of Gutnick and Dow Jones where Mr. Gutnick was uh, defamed by the, 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 the Baron's Bulletin and rather than suing the publishers who are, who were based in New Jersey in the United States, which isn't particularly plaintiff friendly, uh, he decided to sue in the, the great state of Victoria in Australia um, because the laws are are more plaintiff friendly. And he could just simply say, "Well, uh, it, it, the technologies are relevant. It, publishing's publishing, and the the law will uh, evolve and adjust for technological change." Oh, exactly, and. We are moving into that sort of area where actions in one country take back in all countries. Yeah. Um, if you were to post something on Facebook, you're posting it effectively internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so you cannot have that mindset of, well, it's happening here. So I think the, you shouldn't go, as, as they took in that case, you shouldn't go be picking your, your jurisdiction to look at the jurisdiction from the mm-hmm. actions taken, from the parties involved, and again, follow the sort of shipping, shipping laws as to where the correct jurisdiction should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be the, you know, the the proper approach to take. But at times we seem to see, to see people trying to interfere with that and trying to impose what they think the law should be 
um, perhaps beyond their own borders. Yeah, well, well I, I guess there's a you know there's a, there's another theory of what they call the transnational school, which is governance by international law, and that is, you know, as an international community coming together and uh, saying, well, you know, we have these international laws, for example, around banking and you know various other matters. I mean, you've mentioned shipping's a good example. Um, we could somehow create a model similar to that, um, so that there is one law that applies wherever you are, but then that's a real uh, threat to domestic sovereignty and, you know, people being able to, well, nations passing laws for themselves. Um, I, I guess, you know, we, 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 where do you think the nice medium is? Is it, is it one that's sort of a more neoliberal approach that the market will dictate how the, the laws will be or, or should we leave it up to the to the propeller heads, the, the the technicians, the people who actually do the coding and create the hardware to say, well, we're going to enable you to do this, but we're not going to enable you to do that. There's probably no real right answer. It's going to be sort of in the middle ground somewhere. Um, with the international laws, you generally have those laws coming through because there is a financial interest of those governments in making those laws. Mm. And in regards to internet law, that financial interest isn't going to always align, uh, especially when it comes down to sort of personal harm rather than sort of financial benefit. We already see, saw with the um, the profits being made by these companies and sort of countries going, well, we should be taxing that, but can we? And they can't agree as to how that's going to work when it comes to tax, which actually is a benefit to them. Well, yeah, look, they're trying to. I mean, they've passed some treaties where they're sort of saying a 10% tax rate for for corporates across the globe, no matter how they shift their profits and, yeah. and that around. Um, look, only time will tell whether whether that rolls out. Hey, look, let's now dive into some specific issues. Um, one that really did back in the late 90s, and it still continues today, but it, it really highlighted that the internet was was the beginning of the dawn of a new age, was, was that of domain name disputes. I mean, suddenly there was this almost land grab going on where, you know, the, the dot-com name suddenly became a value and, and corporates and, you know, individuals and people were going, hey, um, I need to protect this space because I, I've invested a lot in it. So, you know, tell us about domain name disputes. How, you know, what are they and how are they resolved? I think the value in the domain name has sort of gone down in time. Um, as we are more likely to use an app now than perhaps go to a web page. The, where we saw, at least New Zealand going, um, there has been a change in, in the last couple of years as to the, the rules, was that you could hold a domain that was um, sort of using the IP of another company, but the problem would then arrive if you started using it and there was that sort of idea of, of passing off, or you, you're going to be making use of that person's name. We did see people who would go on what's called Cyber Squat, where they'd go and buy these domain names and often make some good money out of it. Um, mm. I actually buy, when I was at university, I had a small computer company. I happened to have a, um, the initials of the computer company were very similar to a certain um, city council. And I used to get a lot of emails from the city council to me rather than to them. So I ended up selling it to them for you know, a, a nice profit. But yeah. it was just by chance I had a domain which was, was useful to them. So there is some value in that. That was coincidental. That was you were, coincidental. You, you, you weren't no, investing in, in, in city. I, I wasn't choosing that name just to so try and got make the some Hamilton City Councils. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was, um, it was still, every, at that point then I sort of realized that there was a value in there. I actually had some friends of mine from back in those days, many years ago, who would just go and buy expiring domains and then redirect it to less favorable sites and okay. made a lot of money in doing so. 
Yeah. Um, those days have sort of gone away uh, with how Google now works, and you sort of get less these redirections. But that was the way it worked. Now things have changed because we now have these laws where um, they have now applied more of the the law or the IP laws. You have in a domain name to get those domain names back if they are used improperly. So I couldn't go and buy, you know, uh, a Coke-based domain and direct it at my company and say, hey, I'm part of Coke, and that would be uh, definitely be battled. Okay, yeah, so it's taking more of a, an intellectual property approach of going, hey, you know, th- there's a proprietary interest in a particular name. You know, to some extent, a little bit like the approach that's taken when you're wanting to register a trademark. You know, you've yeah, got to show, exactly. you know, some some interest in it somehow to avoid, you know, um, uh other people coming in with objections to say they've got a prior interest in it. So we do have our domain name um, uh, dispute resolution service where people with domain names can go and and have their disputes resolved. I thought I might have been a user myself when um, they New Zealand adopted the the .nz domain and there was an invite sent, I guess, to anyone who had a .co.nz or a, a .org.nz you know, et cetera, to say, hey, do, do you want the, the .nz domain? But um, if there were two owners with similar names other than the, the subdomain being, say, .co or .org, um, it would effectively get locked up unless those two people could sort it out between themselves or two organisations as to who could grab the, the .nz domain. But that dispute resolution service was sitting in there as a way of avoiding people, I guess, getting into the the old school passing off claims in the district court or the high court, spending a lot of money on lawyers, mm. taking a long time, uh, rather than just uh, working through that that process. I mean, have you have you had experience with domain name uh, disputes and the resolution of them? Um, well, generally, we would often just go directly to the other side mm. um, if they they were utilising the domain name. Uh, we'd be saying them, look, no, that is that is passing off. Um, We'll take action against you uh, on on that basis, and that will usually get a much faster result than actually going through the, the dispute process. Yeah, the process um, it's it has been put in together with good intentions. It's not a bad process. We've seen much worse. It's just that at times it wasn't fast enough, um, especially when there was a situation where perhaps a domain has expired. Somebody's jumped onto it, taken mm. it over, um, or one situation we we dealt with where. A disgruntled uh, IT impl- um, provider had been paid his bill, so he took over the domain and redirected it. Right. Um, we found there was better a better process to take it rather than going through the, the um, disputes process. Redirected it to somewhere not particularly nice. Um, basically nowhere at all. Oh, just um, nowhere. So right, okay, uh, the yeah. client was getting no yeah. more emails, and mm-hmm. no more emails means yeah. no more work coming through, no more interactions. Yeah. Um, so that was much better to us to go down. You know, being the lawyer, saying, "Hey, you know, this, these are the, the damages you're causing. We're going to you know, pursue you for these costs." Um, rather than going to um, the, the usual process, which just takes time. Okay. Well, look, um, you mentioned early on, Aaron, um, that one of the uh, developments that sparked your interest in, in this area of the law was the Harmful Digital Communications Act. Now, I mean, that's not new, you, a unique piece of legislation. There are other countries that have equivalents, but not many. Um, uh, tell us about the, 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 the purpose of the act. What does it seek to achieve? The purpose is there to prevent harm, uh, and that's literally what it says in the Act, is there to prevent someone from being harmed from online content. Okay. Um, but the content has to be, it is, it is, it's reasonably strict in the way the courts have defined it, that it has to cause um, serious um, emotional distress, 
Um, it can't be someone who's just taking general offence to a, a statement. It has to be somewhat directed to them or at least be sort of that the mentality behind it that it was directed to them or as a small group of people. Um, so it is there to protect those who who should reasonably be harmed by something. Okay, so, you know, we're not talking about, look, um, you know, someone's just said that I'm not a particular nice person in a, in a general statement. It, it is focused, targeted abuse, but that abuse has to manifest itself or be causative of serious harm to the individual, and, and I take it that that's, uh, that's, that's, that's mental harm. It is mental harm. So yeah. it has to be shown that it has caused that um, emotional distress um, that has manifested into side effects. So it could often be, it doesn't require going to a psychiatrist and getting that sort of written off in that mm. way. It could be down to loss of sleep. It could be loss of appetite, missing work. Um, often they do become suicidal and they can be suicidal attempts. Um, so it does have sort of results from that harm. Mm. It can't just be, yes, yeah, someone said something about me and I felt sad one afternoon and I may have had a couple of bottles of wine and I stepped yeah. it off. Mm. That's not enough. It actually has to cause what's going to be effectively some sort of long-term damage. Okay. Now, look, um, you know, some of the listeners uh, will uh, will have teenagers or will be teenagers, etc. You know, we, you and I uh, grew up uh, as teenagers without necessarily online social media and chats and all the pressures that go with that. But I mean, you and I have seen um, both positive side of social media as well as its, its very dark, sinister, negative side. Um, and, and this is a piece of legislation that can help provide some form of recourse or remedy or, or solution when, um, I don't know why I mentioned teenagers, but I, I, I think it, it, it just seems to me that when you when one looks at um, the harmful digital communications act decisions, um, many of them are you know what I would call either teenagers or teenage type behaviour, and that is a real nasty target uh, of an individual. Um, and sometimes it's done on a group basis as well. You know, it'll be more than one perpetrator will be uh, targeting an individual, but this um, uh, this 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 targeting. Once someone is say uh, concludes or takes a view that they are being subjected to online harassment, how do they how do they utilize the act? How you know what is the process that's followed to try and you know I guess deal with the mischief that's there and, and bring it to an end? First thing we usually advise um, everyone, whether it's whether it is a teenager or their parent or if an adult is being, being harmed, is to record everything. Um, make sure you've got if if there is a if it is posted if it's a message make sure you make a recording of it uh, if you're on Windows uh, Windows G brings up the game bar and you've got a little yeah. recording screen recorder there uh, there's a similar I think it's Control Shift or Control Apple three or something on the um, on a Mac and record that because it's hard to show that harm if you can't provide um, the, the, the authorities with, with, with those posts. Like for example Snapchat you know a lot of these messages just disappear after so many seconds. Yeah, Snapchat's yeah. a difficult one um, because it, because it goes away so fast. If it is post such on Instagram, say a story, mm. um, take a screenshot of it. Yeah. So I think most apps will allow a screenshot at least. Um, or if you're on a computer, yeah, record it on a computer if it's on Facebook. The you then can go to um, either the options of either go to NetSafe um, mm. or the police. If it is to the to the level where there is threats for harm, if it does, if there is sort of fear for someone's life, definitely go to the police. Um, so these are these are online messages saying, look, you know, I'm I'm going to come around to your house and I'm going to hurt you. 
oh, yeah. type scenario. So that's a police matter. Police matter, definitely. Okay. Um, if it's post meant to cause to cause mental harm, but there is no sort of fear of threat of physical harm or or, or damaged property, then you go to NatSafe. Okay. They're, they're the first step to go to. All right. So presumably uh, a, you know, a, a concerned person, could be a parent, for example, can go online, Google NetSafe. There'll be a referral page of some form where you can put in your details and say, this is who I am or this is who you know my teenager or child is. And this is uh, a summary of the, the, the type of behavior that they're being subjected to, um, the harm, and NetSafe will accept that as, a, as an application to them. Is that how it works? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and the law does allow for a parent or a teacher or a guardian or someone um, of authority to actually submit on someone else's behalf. So you could be a parent or a teacher or just a close friend and sort of put it through and NetSafe can investigate from that basis. Okay. And so so once NetSafe have had a referral from you know someone who's laying effectively a complaint of online harassment, what do they do then? They'll first of all look at it and say, well, does this breach one of the one of the um, principles from the Act? Is this is actually an offence under the Act? Uh, if they, it is, then they'll look at two pathways. They can either try to mediate it, and often they can do that. They can go to the other party and say, hey, we know you've said these things. What you're doing is actually an offence. Um, it could go further and try to get them to realise um, the harm they're causing to stop doing it. Um, in some cases, we will encourage them not to do that because that could actually create further harm, in which case if they come back saying, yes, we agree, this does breach the principles of the Act, you can then apply to the district court um, for an order un- by the district court under the Act. Okay, so this is a gateway process though, isn't it? Like um, in terms of uh, someone, let's say I feel like I'm being harassed online. Um, if I want to go to the district court and get an order of some form, I do have to go, through, and I'm not talking about the criminal side, um, I do have to go through the net safe process. Yes, you yeah. do. Yeah, uh, okay. If you go to the court immediately, they will say to you, please go back to NetSafe, or they will themselves go to NetSafe and actually ask NetSafe whether this is um, a breach of the, of, of the, the requirements. Now, um, look, I mean, it, it sounds great in practice, the, the fact that there is an independent uh, organisation um, that, you know, is funded, you know, by the taxpayer. It's, it's, it's there. There's, there's not a, a cost to people making these referrals. I'm right on that, aren't I? There's no... You are you are right there, yeah. um, but you're also right in that it, it sounds good in theory. Because yeah. um, after you get past that first stage, and I think we do, should mention about the criminal side in a moment as well, yeah. just so that you know, there is a distinction there. Yeah. Um, but on the civil side, um, once you got past that first stage, you go to court. That is not an easy process, as we know. You okay, know? but before we talk about the court process, um, do you know this? Because I don't know. This is why I'm asking the question. Do you know the statistics of how successful NetSafe is in terms of resolving disputes? Um, because I mean, if I if I compare it to, for example, MB, the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment, you know, they'll tell you that with their employment disputes, you know, they're resolving something like four out of five. You know, eighty percent of the disputes, they're sorting them all out. Um, do, do we know anything about how effective NetSafe is? Actually, no, that's a good point. I've mm. never actually seen the stats um, mm. as to, mm. you know, all I have is number of experience with them, but mm. on a larger picture, actually, no, I've never seen the stats for that. Yeah, actually, look, I'm, actually, I'm quite interested in it to see yeah. even the number of referrals they get, like the, whether, whether there's been increases over the years of um, people um, needing to use their services or, you know, where things are at. Anyway, maybe that's something for me to go away and do some homework on, but uh, an interesting area. Okay, so let's just progress, uh, which I think was where you were taking us to. 
been through the NetSafe process. They've tried to offer mediation. Either the respondent, the you know, the alleged uh, perpetrator of this harassment, is either not engaging and saying not interested, don't want to um, uh, be involved, or they have engaged and there's there's just no resolution. Um, you know, the the harmful posts are still up on the internet. They're still being put up, etc. Uh, what does the uh, what does the applicant do then? The other option there as well is, is that they could be anonymous or post yep. under a fake name or just someone sure. use someone's name, and that's often the case um, for some of the, the the worst posts we've seen. So they'd go to the court, they'd they'd file with the court. Um, they've made the process to file reasonably simple, mm. but as we know, it is not easy to stand in front of a judge. Um, as a lawyer, first when you do it, you know, you're reasonably scared of the process. Yeah. As a layperson doing that in front of a judge, no matter how nice the judge is, you're sitting in a courtroom surrounded by other lawyers who are looking at you going, who's this person? It is not an easy experience. So we'll... Um, well, it's, an av- is, it's an adversarial process, which is no different to any of the other civil claims. Exactly. There yeah. is no. There was supposed to be um, an easier process. The government at the time decided not to put in the easier process and to leave it as an adversarial sort of you know court process which leaves someone who's unrepresented um, sort of scrambling, not knowing what to do, which then means you have to hire a lawyer, bring a lawyer in um, for those lawyers who sort of handle that area, and that then starts bringing on the cost. Now, if the, if the party is anonymous in the post, which often they are with the worst posts, you then have to seek action against one of the, um, the content host providers, so a, a Meta, a Facebook, an Instagram, a Snapchat, and, seek, um, and add them to the, to the process because you don't know who the person is who's posted them and then seek an order against them. That then leads the cost of having to go to them to get them to, to respond to the orders, to provide information as to who it is. And that cost just gets bigger and bigger. It's a slower process. It is just not a fun, uh, it's not fun at all. It, is, uh, it makes things worse. If you're a victim, it just re-victimizes you again and again. Well, I mean, to a degree, I mean, I'm not saying this happens in all cases, but um, Certainly, I can think of instances where the the respondent, the perpetrator, the harasser, has taken a view of, well, this is perfect. Sue me. This is exactly what I want you to do because it enables me to to be more relevant in your life as the applicant, the victim, and uh, and I can sit there either as a lay litigant defending myself or bring a lawyer in and um, uh, cross examine you and put it to you that you haven't suffered harm or you've brought it upon yourself, et cetera. So that's a re-victimization scenario. Exactly. And when you get to the actual hearing, that's the very first process mm-hmm. is the victim sits on the stand and gets questioned over all these posts. Yeah. They get very re-victimized, brought up again and again and, and asked to justify how that's harmful. Um, it is often twisted and turned against them. Uh, it just makes things worse. And you often say to clients, I'll say to clients a lot, and I, I hate using this example, um, of saying, look, can you bear it if you don't go further? Yeah. Can you live through this? Um, I never want to say to a client, just ignore it because you cannot ignore these things online. They're always going to be there. If you don't look at them, you still know that they're, they're, that they're actually happening there. But it does come down to going through the process will make things worse to some degree. Yep. Okay. Well, I mean, of course, that's always good advice is to, is to give clients the option of doing nothing um, uh, so that you're not throwing more fuel on the fire, giving it oxygen, um, just letting it just become uh, an irrelevance because often the harassers, uh, what they're seeking is engagement. Exactly. And yeah. all you're going to get is in the civil regime mm. is them being told to stop yeah. and the post removed and that's it. And it could be uh, months, if not years, fighting effectively nothing. Okay, well, let's just talk about remedies that the district court has. Um, 
So uh, someone has filed their application under the Harmful Digital Communications Act. They've established that there has been um, uh, harassment online. Uh, it has caused serious harm. W- what powers does the, does the court then have? What can the court do? So under the civil regime, effectively the court can order for the post to be removed. They can order for no further post to be made or no, for the... Um, the, the respondent to encourage not to encourage others to make similar posts, and they can order an apology. Okay, um, and that's effectively it. All right. Now there's 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 a small power to award some costs, but there's no power to award compensation. Correct. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, it, to a degree, it's a, a a right without particular remedies with teeth. Yes, and that is why we see these very few of these matters actually being resolved. Um, usually a part through it, and then at some point they're going to go, yeah, I'll just stop. we just leave it alone here, and the matter finishes. Okay. So let's now sort of jump to the, to the other side of the coin uh, in terms of the criminal uh, part of, of the legislation under the Harmful Digital Communications Act. Um, we, at what point does it go from being a civil matter to a criminal matter? There's two ways it can go to criminal uh, with the recent changes. The first and one that was established from the very beginning was that the posts were made with the intention of causing harm, mm. um, and that harm was caused and we reached a threshold. At that point, uh, the police should be involved and they should be uh, taking over the matter, and that these are out of the um, these are out of the victim's hands. The police can get involved; they cover the cost, they handle all of that for them. Um, where possible, we'll encourage our clients to go on that pathway. We'll talk to the police and try to encourage the police to get involved. Historically, they have been reluctant a lot of the time to get involved, um, often making excuses rather than actually doing what we think should have been their job. The other way which has come through with the, the, the recent amendments is that um, intimate visual material, so any posts of somebody which meets the criteria of IVR under the Crimes Act as well as under the, um, this legislation, will automatically be deemed as being posted for the intention of causing harm. Um, it will be then on the respondent to, or the defendant in that case, to prove they had consent to post. So sort of consent needs to be pro- proven rather than assumed. Okay, and, and of course the onus is on the person posting the content. It's, it's not the other way around. Yeah, it's very hard okay. to prove that somebody didn't have consent. Yeah. If somebody had to have consent to post you know, naked photographs, um, they'll have to prove they had that consent. Okay, well, naked photo- photographs, let's talk about revenge porn. So this is a thing, isn't it? Sadly, it is. Um, and I had to appear in, in the Manukau court for one person who had gone to the police um, prior to the changes, um, the IVR changes, where there had been posts put onto Instagram of her um, photographs, videos, under a name that was very similar to her real name. And Instagram Meta had done a good job in removing it. Um, definitely always report these things to the, the host providers. The, most of them are pretty good at removing these con- this content. And it was posted again and had, had we'd estimated hundreds of thousands of views on these mm. posts. Uh, the police had given a response of along the lines of, well, you shouldn't have given that person these photographs. Um, taking action against this person won't remove the harm that's been done, that sort of, sort of thing. So we got involved and had to go to, um, to court for her and seek orders against Meta to find out who the posts were made by. Now, the police should have done that. And under the new legislation, the police will do that. They'll be required to do it. Um, but at the time, they sort of had this discretion to say, well, well, I think they didn't have discretion, but they took use discretion to say, well, actually, no, 
when they're going to act on that. So the changes now force them to act in those situations. Yeah, and of course the, the difficulty with getting the police to act is that um, I, I, sus- I mean it's, it's just my perception is the reaction is going to depend on who the complainant is um, uh, and where the complaint is actually made, you know, i.e. which police station you go to and how lucky you are or unlucky depending on, you know, which, you know, officers happen to be on on, on duty or on call that particular day because um, the police don't have, or I'm, I mean, I'm stand to be corrected, but I don't believe they necessarily have a, a universal policy across the whole country that if someone walks up to the front counter and says, for example, Hey, I'm 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 being targeted with a with a, with a revenge porn attack. Um, that that you're going to get exactly the same service wherever you are in the country. Is that I mean, has that been your experience or perception? Yeah, it has. Um, I think if someone who was older or someone who was not a young female, as it was in this mm. situation, had gone to perhaps uh, a station in a more affluent area, yeah. then she may have gotten a different response. Um, in this case, we wrote to the minute to, to the the um, officer. We actually wrote to the minister of police and didn't get a response until we got another MP uh, involved. Uh, ironically, the MP who actually brought through the IVR legislation, okay. yeah. uh, once she got involved, we actually got a response from the minister of police of saying, "Well, this shouldn't have happened." And so, well, at that point, it was way too late. Um, because so, that, that would have taken quite a bit of time. I mean, that's took a, quite a bit to, of time to yeah. go through those, to yeah. jump through those hurdles, trying to get a response. Yeah. Um, especially when, when a judge says to you, "Mr. Hunt, where are the police?" While well, you're sitting yeah. standing in court. You're so like, yeah, Your Honour, I wish I could tell you. Yeah. Um, even the court was asking the question as to why the police weren't involved. So sure. the, the changes does make a move in that direction, and I think the police are getting better. Um, I did do a webinar for NZLS uh, about a year ago, almost six months ago, uh, with a colleague of mine about online harm around the family violence, and the police were actually in attendance to that. So they are taking more of an interest now, which is good to see. Um, but in the past, they have been... There is this, I suppose, mentality of things that are online aren't quite real, um, and the police haven't quite caught up yet at times. At least some of them haven't. That it's very real, probably more real than reality. Yeah, I mean, I do know that currently now the the, the New Zealand Police Electronic Crimes Unit are suffering significant capacity issues. Like to, their ability to be able to investigate uh, electronic crime is, is severely compromised, and it's simply because they've just got too much work and not enough resources and. Uh, look, I mean, they've always struggled a bit. I mean, my first dealings with them was 25 years ago, and uh, that, that was right at, the, at their sort of infancy. You know, so we're sort of starting up. Um, but look, since we're on the on the topic of revenge porn, I, I've got to I'll go. I've got to jump in. I've got an old war story I'll, I'll share with you. <laughs> I mean, this was pre the legislation, so this is going back to 2001, um, 2002. Oh, this lovely young couple come in and see me. Their solicitor referred them to me, and they sat there in front of me in my chambers, looking quite sheepish. And and I said, oh, look, you know, what's the problem? You know, what can I help with? And, and what they explained to me is they said, well, look, um, we, we received this, 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 this very nefarious um, letter. Um, and when I say we received it, we're, um, uh, the, the father-in-law, so, so the, 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 the fiancé, the woman's father, who was a, was a priest, had received this letter saying uh, along the lines of, I was jolly surprised to find a, and I'll just use the name Smith, that's not their real name, Smith on the internet, Lord knows how many more there are. And, and there was a URL, okay, and this, this, this retired priest who's, who's in his 70s, never used a computer in his life, had no idea what a URL was, but could see that 
his daughter's name was in the in the URL. So anyway, um, uh, he then sat down. When I say he, this is you know the male client um, got on his laptop and and here's these videos of his of his fiance um, in the middle of sexual acts, and they were really upset about it and couldn't figure couldn't initially figure out you know how this had all happened, um, but then had worked out that. Um, a few years earlier, um, she had been at a at a, a work function. Um, went home with a colleague. She believes that she was drugged, quite possibly drugged, and, um, and of course, there's been that recent case in Christchurch um, or name suppression. We won't breach name suppression at all, <laughs> etc. Uh, where those uh, those individuals down there have been convicted of of sort of similar behaviour, going to bars, drugging women, taking them home, sexually assaulting them. Um, uh, Etc. So, so that sort of scenario. This is what she was saying, and she said she remembers, but wasn't quite sure that there was a camera involved, and then thought nothing of it until this incident had popped up, and that was all she could come up with. Anyway, to try and move this war story ahead a bit quicker, um, we worked out who the individual is, wrote to them, and said, "Look, this is horrific. You know, you need to take it down." Um, he then sent. This is back in the fax days, fifteen-page fax way off on various tangents, but you could tell that he was not mentally exactly that particularly stable, uh, which then led to a decision to um, issue proceedings uh, ex parte, use a little bit of old Latin there, um, without notice for, for those who um, don't know what ex parte is, without notice of the defendant um, to apply for uh, a search order. And back, back then they were called Anton Pillar orders so that we could go to his house and seize his computer because... You know, we needed to gather up the evidence, um, further evidence um, of his involvement. Uh, we had sufficient evidence to point the finger that he was the publisher, um, but we had to we had to shoehorn some old law into that. And the, and the, the two torts that we jumped into was was one of defamation. That was one of the ones that we ran with, and we said, well, look, you know, the posting's defamatory because it suggests that she's consented to it, okay, and it's defamatory of her. And the court accepted. Again, this was all without notice to the the defendant, so he didn't get a chance to argue whether our argue against it, say whether whether or not that was a good argument. But the court accepted that on the face of it, there was a prima facie claim, uh, quite a strong arguable claim of of defamation. And the other one that we slipped in was uh, the tort of confidence, and said, well, you know, when two adults are in intimate sort of relations, you know. For, for for those there, you know, i.e., having sex, and it's being filmed. Um, you know, there is a there is a there's a confidence that's there, and the confidence is you aren't then going to go on three years later and put it up on the internet. Um, court accepted that, granted the search order. Uh, you know, the execution team turned up at his house, seized his computers and and various other things, and yeah, everything was there. Um, the matter resolved shortly thereafter. Um, to the satisfaction of the clients. Um, but what a horrific thing for them to go through. And I mean, one of the things that they said to me was, we, we need this taken down immediately. I mean, she's a very senior manager in a large organisation, and you imagine the impact um, on her career if if this revenge porn is, is, is made more widely available. Now, fortunately, back then, 2001, um, it's, it's, it was a different world. I mean, now um, there's just no way of controlling content on the internet once it's uh, once it's unleashed. Well, now you'd have um, that you have under the HDC Act, you'd have under the Crimes Act as well, of mm. course, making a recording. Um, yeah. And 
But as you say, things that go online, we say to clients all the time, anything you post online is up online forever. If you mm. click delete, you're not deleting it, you're just removing it from view. It's still there. And someone's got a, got a screenshot and could have put it somewhere else. Um, I well, did thought I wanted to mention the in regards to the HTC Act, um, sort of give an example as to a quick example as to how it fails. There was the recent situation in the US where there was a number of uh, streamers, so you know, gaming streamers on Twitch or uh, on YouTube, who had had deep fakes themselves made. Uh, so people, someone had you know, got got their images from, from the screens, made deep fakes of them doing a pornographic material, and put it onto a pay site. So you can go and pay and see your mm-hmm. favorite um, um, streamer in various you know, stages of undress. The issue with that, of course, is uh, if that was in New Zealand, the person who did that, and he, he came out and removed, it, removed the site when it, when it was um, raised as attention that no one actually liked it, um, was that he did it for the money. Now, he didn't do it to cause them harm. Um, he did it because he wanted to make some money off their imagery. Now, there was a financial gain. Financial gain. There was so, no intention yeah. To, yeah. for any of them to be hurt by it. He didn't mm. actually really care. Um, now, if that was under the New Zealand legislation, what would the crime actually be? There was no intention to cause harm, so it's not going to fall under the crimes part of the Act. Um, the Act, um, the new IVR parts of the Act mm. don't cover deep fakes, possibly. We don't think they do, but I'm sort of wanting to argue at some point that perhaps we can sort of shoehorn it in there. Maybe a fair trading act, you know, misleading deceptive conduct and trade. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, they'd have to then prove, of course, that you actually thought it was that person. They yeah. happen to do porn on the side. So the legislation, especially when it around deep fakes, legislation doesn't go far enough. Mm. And I think we're waiting for that one big case in New Zealand when it comes to those areas where we're going to be jumping all over going, well, come on, guys, this legislation just doesn't work. Um, and that would have been the perfect example if it had been in New Zealand. Yeah, um, exactly. But we're going to see that here somewhere. Now, we, of course, did argue with the select committee at the time of the, the changes that deep fakes need to be part of that um, intervention material because, frankly, if you're a victim, whether it was you or not in the, in the video, it actually makes no difference. You know, you can prove, you can say, well, it wasn't me in the video. People go, well, it looks like you. And the harm is caused, but the harm is caused just by you doing the action in the first place. So the emission of deepfakes from that, that IVR really does cause issues. Yeah, okay, so it's definitely an area of, of potential reform, and, and there's, there's a need there. And, and of course, let, let's talk about AI in a minute, because that, that's, a, that's quite a topic in itself, because AI is going to enable deepfakes even, even more. But... Before we do, and uh, I, I want to leave the the area of the criminal side by talking about the, you know the dark web. Let's take a deeper dive into the, the dark web. Now there are going to be listeners that have that have heard of the dark web, but don't know what it is, how it operates, etc. Can you can you give us some insight? So we have the web that you know um, is basically. Um, so the over, I don't know the term for it. There is a term for the the, the web that we all mm-hmm. see that you know the Facebooks, the the Googles, that sort of stuff. That's open and, and, and visible, and you can be tracked while you're using it. Now, the dark web is generally done through uh, Tor, the Onion Router, but it's also done through a few other bits of software. And it's a web where the idea is that you cannot be traced, they cannot be traced. You can use the internet, the, these websites, without anyone seeing that you're using it or the government saying that you're using it. Okay, so let's just stop right there for a second, and we're, we're going to have to get into a little bit of technical discussion for, for listeners here. So the internet, uh, and um, look, Aaron, I'm going to call upon you, but this is my rudimentary understanding. I mean, the internet is, is to a large extent, it is a, a, a connection of computers. Uh, and when I say computers, they're not necessarily like my laptop. I mean, people can't see us here, but I've got my laptop on the, on the desk. Um, uh, all interconnected, but it can be servers as well, um, et cetera, sitting in large 
you know, server warehouses, but they're all connected via IP address, internet protocol addresses, so that they're able to, through a, a looking up routing system, be able to say, hey, you know, I want to move data from, from, from this address to another address, i.e. from one computer connected here to another computer. And to a large extent, I think we've also got to say it's not a direct computer computer because it because often it's it's a it's a, a router to router that is then connecting computers uh, and and subnets. Now, so I hope I have I've tried to simplify it as much as possible, but maybe the way of looking at it is like a tree structure. Is that a is that a way of, of doing I'd it? Probably look at it in more of a massive spider web. Yeah, massive spider. Yeah, much better. Much Where better way of you're, describing. You're at one point in the spider web. There's somewhere else. Um, and each of those points where the webs interact has a number. Yeah. You're sitting at that one point. Your number is no, 34. It's Whatever. a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. You want to go to, to 78. Now mm. that's going to bounce between all those little, little junctions as it goes across the web. Yeah. Um, it could have multiple ways it can go, and the, the internet works in that it finds the fastest route for you to get from A to B. Yeah. Um, but all throughout that link, of course, those sites, are set, those, those different connections that you bounce through, different mm. servers around the world, will be seeing you going from A to B, from 34 to 78. And can be recording it as well and, and going, we know that you're sitting on your computer at 38 and you're sending data or receiving data from 72. Okay, I, I know we're using very simplified numbers because the numbers are much more complicated and there are subnet numbers sitting under those as well, depending on how you're going, but let's keep it simple. But your what your point is, is, is that when you're using you know, we'll just say the traditional internet, all of that can be monitored often by computer technology itself and be recording exactly what packets of data, what information is moving across the network to you and from you, whereas the dark web is a technological solution so that you can uh, participate in online activities without um, uh, the standard technology being able to monitor what you're doing. Yeah. So in regard, so if you were, say, uh, I'm here in Auckland and I wanted to use uh, Google, this probably be going through six or seven different connections before it actually gets to Google. Yeah. So six or seven points there, they're recording where I've been. Now, dark, the dark web, uh, especially one like Tor, I refer to it as like past the parcel. Yep. And we have it when you're a kid where you, you know you have a, a GIF with like multiple layers on it. Now, as 34, I send off the parcel of information. It goes to a random number, say 256. They take off the first layer, go somewhere else, another number, next layer, and it bounces through all the different connections, each of those only knowing the one before and after it. So yeah. after you use like, you know, three or four different bounces, they don't know where it originally came from or where it's, or where it's actually going to. It's only the final person who opens the final bit of parcel that goes, okay, it's going to 72, and they deliver it. So all those connections in between will only know two connections, but not the entire link. So they won't know that I sent it or where it's going unless you're at the first or the start of the end of it. So that keeps that communication uh, theoretically sort of um, confidential. Yeah, that, that the tourbuzz are talking, but nobody else can tell. Yep. Okay. And you know the dark web is a, a technological solution for those that are wanting to have uh, anonymity. Um, and, and often the reason why they're wanting anonymity is because they're intending on committing crimes, um, whether that's procuring narcotics, you know, drugs, um, uh, whether it's engaging in child pornography. Uh, uh, look, at whatever your imagination is around crime, 
um, if if there's a way of sourcing what you're looking for, um, the dark web provides uh, an opportunity for that, and surely must be a frontier that our law enforcement agencies and our you know and our legislature need to be able to look at to say, hey, there's a system that's in play that's enabling crimes to be um, attempted at a minimum, committed um, when they're fully executed. You know, um, what can be done? I mean, have you got any thoughts around that space? The times where they have taken down the, the, you generally have these sites that pop up on the dark web um, and they will be two or three at any one time that sort of covers most of the trade. And it could be trade, as you said, in drugs, narcotics, could be child pornography. Um, there's a lot of trade in personal information, mm. fake passports, that sort of thing. These generally come down to when one of the hosts makes an error. Yeah. They'll post something which will link them to an email address and they're under constant constant. Uh, scrutiny the websites are on scrutiny these sites are like trade me they yeah. have reviews they have rankings for people you know you if you want some of a certain um product i wouldn't say what yeah. um they will say they've had 150 customers they had 38, 38 likes you no know, two bad reviews and you sort of go and review these things so they're, they're actually pretty good structures um they're just selling a really bad product yeah so generally they'll come to the point where someone they'll make a mistake they'll get an um they'll click on something in the wrong place or they'll put an email address somewhere the authorities will find them. And in the past, what they've done is that they've gone in there, arrested them, and kept the site running yeah. for, for a period of time. For all that time, they're sitting there watching these people paying with credit cards, giving delivery address, and basically everyone just doing committing crimes. And it, lead, it would lead to, you'll see articles in the paper where they'll have like a thousand arrests around the world in a matter of 24 hours as all these various police forces get together and do mass arrests based on this crime. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you may have picked up in the, in the news feed, it's about this time last year, uh, a, a global uh, drug operation where um, law enforcement agencies—I suspect it was the, D, um, the DEA in, in America, someone there—had created a messaging app, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was fantastic, genius. They created a messaging app and then managed to get these drug cartels to start using it. It was the funniest um, news of the year. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, um, yeah, and they had they score. They had these guys. Um, actually, one Kiwi was one of the main guys doing it, who was yeah. selling their service a thousand dollars every month. I think it was. Mm. People basically, he was paying uh, the the you know, the CIA or somebody yeah. for paying paying them for the right for for, the, for them to watch and read their emails. Mm. It was, it was hilarious. Know, it was know, fantastic. A, it was I genius. Mean, it, it is actually, you, in a way, I kind of imagined um, a, a meeting at, you know, some branch of the DEA, DEA and, and someone comes up with their idea of the week and says, why do we create a messaging app and actually give it to the drug cartels and see if they'll use it? And then we can monitor all of their and, communications. And charge them for it. <laughs> and, and charge them at the same time. Anyway, um, yeah, so this, look, that actually made its way all the way into New Zealand and Australia as well, and that um, uh, led to a few arrests uh, here down under. Um, look, last crime, before we start talking a, a bit more about practical applications of, of the internet um, to law, is a bit of uh, this week, actually last night, a uh, bit of news coverage on, on on phishing scams. You know, these are, for listeners, these are the scams where, where you get an email, it looks completely legitimate, um, or you get contacted by someone who comes across as being completely legitimate, but they're a fraudulent actor, okay? And, and they'll go to quite, a, a, to amazing extents um, uh, of setting up fake websites that look totally legit to legitimate businesses. I mean, this, this one on the news last night was Citibank and uh, a New Zealand woman here in Auckland uh, wanted to invest $100,000. 
and you know went online, put her details in, was asked for verification. It all looks all legit. The money is transferred. Um, often it's transferred locally to someone who's tied up in a as a victim in another um, scam. Often it's a romance scam. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm so in love with you. I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars this week, but I need you to transfer it to my, you know, I, I, I don't want to pick out countries. It might be Malaysia, <laughs> Malaysia, uh, etc. So, you know, this is a, another area of misuse on the internet. Um, uh, again, Aaron, you know, is this is this really just a be careful, be aware, be mindful. I know that there are scam, um, sort of scam alert websites overseas, nothing here locally. Maybe that's something we need. What do you think? I think people just need to learn um, to be more, yeah, be more careful. Um, the hard part is, is, is that it's easy to go onto the genuine site and just copy it. Mm. And within a matter of minutes, you've got an identical site, but with you're running it rather than they are. Um, and, the, and, and using similar domain names so that it's, you know, it does look similar. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you could have yeah. Citibank or Citibank dash US or mm. Citibank dot something US. It's so easy to, to do that. You know, if you look at even like at Zoom, Zoom dot US, yeah. it's such a strange domain name for them to have chosen to use, but that's what they use. Mm. And sure, I would think, oh, that's a scam, but it's not. That's the genuine site. So it's always hard to tell what's genuine and what's fake. Um, if in doubt, always go to people that you know are genuine. So go down to your bank uh, mm. and ask them, hey, this is taking place. Is, is it real? And no, they will probably possibly be able to tell you, um, go to NetSafe. NetSafe have a reporting function. You can go and ask NetSafe to, to look into that and say, hey, is this genuine? Is this a real website? Uh, and they will probably be aware of it if there's others who are asking the same question. So if you aren't certain or it's something that you haven't done with before or it's a new contact you've made, go and check these things out. Go and talk to people who would actually know these things. Um, I'll have clients on mm -hmm. occasion send me through, hey, I got this letter. Um, the classic one is the good old um, IP letter from various IP companies saying, hey, we're, we're, we're acting for, uh, for, for WIPO or someone, um, here's a fee you have to pay, and actually it's a scam. You're basically just paying for nothing. Yeah. And I'll kind of say, hey, is this genuine? And I'll respond, say yes or no, or just, um, and yeah, so if you've got a lawyer, go ask your lawyer sometimes and okay. ask them. Yeah, so, I mean, look, obviously the alert level that someone should be or the care they're taking when it's someone new, but of course, it happens. Our case law has shown, although to be fair, admittedly, it's really overseas case law, has shown examples of these phishing scams where um, you, the, the business has an existing relationship with a supplier, okay, and they've had it for years. And then they've been hacked into by a fraudulent actor who then um, goes, oh, you know, every month they pay, you know, various sums of money to the supplier. I'm going to email them posing as the supplier and say, hey, our bank details have changed. You now need to change it to this. And of course, the company goes, oh, yeah, we've been dealing with them for 20 years and they've changed their bank account. Sure, we'll start directing the payments that way. So I, I guess the the lesson there is get on the phone and just check with your suppliers that it is actually their details that, that you've been asked to change. I mean, there's a little practical tip there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, law firms will do that every time we do a transfer. Um, if we don't already have the, the details online on, in our systems, mm. we'll be doing a phone call and saying, hey, just want to confirm that email, the number you've got here, please give it to me again so I can confirm the number. Um, and we'll call them on a number that we know is their number rather than them calling us. It's mm -hmm. just always a double checking. There's been so often cases, and even in New Zealand recently, I know of one uh, big firm that happened to pay $100,000 to the wrong, the wrong party yeah. for exactly that reason. They got told the wrong details. They, yeah. they didn't double check it, and $100,000 gone. 
And, and what you know, some people won't appreciate is that um, if you get a bill um, and it's it's a fraudulent bill um, because the details have been changed. I mean, you you know that you owe your supplier some money because you've you, because you've got their product or their services, but you've been sent a fraudulent invoice. Paying the invoice doesn't mean you've discharged the debt to the supplier. You still owe them the money. Mm. That's that's how it works. It's it's not a great outcome for the person paying, but that's just the way the law works. Especially for larger companies who will get lots of these invoices coming through, and mm. if they're a small enough amount that they don't bother even checking, they'll just go and pay it. Yeah. And we won't, so, won't find out until about six months later, what, where's this money gone? <laughs> you know, what's this account number? Um, so it really does require staff to be you know, vigilant over these payments. If there's a change in account number, if there's a new invoice, new invoice type, or there's a change in some sort of structure, check these things out. Yeah, no, totally, 100%. Great advice. Hey, let's talk about some other recent developments in the internet, social media from overseas, uh, Gonzales and Google. Um, now, what's happened there? So this is the one that actually fascinates me the most. Um, Gonzalez was sadly a um, student who was shot in Paris uh, during a terrorist attack mm. a few years ago. And her family on her behalf has taken Google to court on the basis that Google would use its recommendation algorithms to recommend videos that would take people down the rabbit hole into this more extreme sort of terrorist mindset. Um, and that's now up to the Supreme Court. I think it was February they did the submissions for that, and we're waiting for for an outcome. Probably still a while to wait. And there is a sex, thing called Section Two Thirty um, in the US, which basically gives these protection to these platforms, um, so they're not seen as publishers. That they are purely there as a platform to provide information. They can't be held liable for what the information that they host on their systems. Now, the question from Gonzalez is that not so much that Google held these videos that were sort of you know, terrorist-based, but that they were recommending them or taking people in that direction. Was there, uh, was there a breach um, under other legislation like the um, Anti-Terrorism Act, um, or was, were they protected by Section 230? And this is the big one because that algorithm that recommends videos is the backbone of, of, of things like YouTube. If yeah. you, you, I can go on there, I can see the, you know, the channels I subscribe to, um, I know their videos, I know their content, but for the ones I don't subscribe to, those are recommended by YouTube based on what, I, what, what my, my views are. Now, if I get recommended these other videos, if YouTube's held liable for what they recommend to me, they're going to recommend a lot less videos. We're going to see lots of recommendations of sort of more, more high profile, sort of you know, very vanilla, bland entertainment. We're not going to see the more fringe of stuff, which is often the good stuff, and it could be, you know, it won't help uh, the marginalized communities get information on there. You're going to see a lot less, um, to be frank, a lot less non-white male people on, on YouTube. You're going to see a right. lot a lot less uh, LGBTQ on YouTube because they're not going to be recommended on the basis that somebody might pursue YouTube because they were offended by it or there was some harm caused by it. So Section 230 um, and under Gonzalez, Section 230 needs to be protected on that mm. basis that YouTube is there to provide the service and without that protection, they'll stop doing that. Yeah, and this has been a, a hotly debated, legally debated issue for for twenty plus years. Is the extent to which platform providers are vi well, not necessarily vicariously liable, but actually liable because you know they're hosting the the content and, uh, and it's available, and if it breaches the law, uh, that's there. Now, so 
Uh, the Supreme Court, we haven't got a hearing date for that. This is a watch the space scenario. It's, yeah? it's been heard. It has um, been heard. February yeah. 20th, 21st, I think it was. Yeah. Um, they heard that, then they heard a uh, one versus Twitter, a Twitter one following day. So there was two very close together on a very similar set of aspects. Um, now it's waiting for a decision. There was a lot of submissions made by a number of parties um, on both for and against um, the argument of Gonzalez. And now it's basically waiting to see where it, where it goes. Um, I think largely they were in support of Google. Just yeah. on the basis, not so much for Google, but the basis that there is a need to protect um, that allowance. Um, those that were supporting Gonzalez were those who are typically groups who are offended by online harm. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. And, and the other one, just to, while we're on that topic, is Force and Facebook. Force and Facebook was, of course, that they sort of writ for the Supreme Court. I don't think yeah. it went through. I think the Supreme Court knocked it back. But much the same sort of arguments um, in force that was against Facebook where it was um, actually taken by Hamas and there was five people who were killed by Hamas in various attacks. And um, Hamas, of course, um, are seen by the US as being a terrorism terrorist group um, where the rest of the world will see them possibly as, well, it depends where you are as to how you see them. So there was the argument that Facebook had been encouraging people to go and join Hamas or would it encourage you to, to perhaps go and look at their posts or people who were part of them or part of their supporters, you know, people you may know that you may get along with or there's a Hamas event that you may want to be involved in. Um, and the, the researchers found that if they were researching that area or they had liked a post by somebody in that community, they'd start getting more of these posts that would direct them towards um, more hardline sort of Hamas-based terrorism um, posts and events and that sort of thing. So they were seeking action against Facebook. And then Facebook had gone past the point of merely just sort of being a, a host information, but actually being um, pushing that information out there and encouraging people to go down these these, these routes towards terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, that got up to the Supreme Court, who wouldn't hear it. They um, basically said that they had gone through the courts and the courts had while there had been, I think the Chief Justice at the Court of Appeal had um, gone on the side of force, that he had gone against the court. Um, there was, was Judge Justice Katzman, but the, the, the majority had gone with Facebook on the basis that Section 230 does provide them that indemnity. That protection. Well, um, maybe we should be sending uh, Zuckerberg a bottle of wine for all the case law that that's being created by us company, um, uh, staying with Facebook, but bringing it much closer to home, although, you know, here down under, across in Australia, the, it looks like the, uh, the High Court of Australia, Australia's highest court, is going to deal with the, uh, the Facebook and the AIC appeal. Uh, what can you tell us about that case? So there's always that idea that when you're dealing with Facebook, you know, who exactly are you dealing with? Uh, if you're in America, you're dealing with Facebook Inc. Um, if you're dealing with Facebook anywhere else in the world, you're dealing with Facebook Island Limited, um, who handle all the international operations of Facebook outside the US. Um, when you see a Facebook New Zealand or Meta New Zealand, they're generally just an advertising arm. They have no actual operation control of, of Facebook. So when there was action um, in the Australia the court was sort of saying, well, are we dealing with Facebook Inc. or Facebook Ireland? Uh, which one mm. are we actually dealing with here? And they sought action against Facebook Inc. Actually, sought action against both of them. Um, and Facebook Ireland didn't actually contest that they were the party to go to. They said, yes, that's us. Facebook Inc. Inc. Um, protested that and said, well, actually, no, we're not dealing with um, operations in Australia. That's Facebook Ireland. But what the court did find was that Facebook Inc., while they, they were providing a service to Facebook Ireland, 
were providing a service for Facebook Inc. It was yeah. very sort of circular in, 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 in their procedure. So you had Facebook Inc. who were using cookies to Australian clients. They were the ones who were, who were operating there. And the courts were saying, well, really, in reality, it's Facebook Inc. that we're dealing with, whether you, know, you have agreement between the two parties as to how things work. As far as we're concerned, we're dealing with Facebook Inc. Now, if you were a user using Facebook, of course, you can agree as to who it is you're dealing with. There's no jurisdictional agreements and that sort of thing. But when it comes to governments, when they have, say, um, uh, privacy laws or information laws, the government can determine whether those, those agreements uh, work or not. And in the Australian case, um, they were seeking to get Facebook Inc. included as, as the party rather than Facebook Island. Um, and the most recent one was at the federal court where the court did knock it back saying, no, it is still, no, even though they agreed that Facebook Inc. was highly involved in the operations, they were still Facebook Island you're dealing with. Um, and that's now been appealed up to the um, well, to high court. court. Yeah, the high court of Australia. All right. Well, look, we mean in that case, of course, the issue of privacy comes up. And let's talk about uh, online privacy. I mean, to an extent, you know, we do have legislation here in New Zealand, Privacy Act 2020. It's privacy uh, uh, version 2.0, um, I guess you could call it. Um, how does um, how does the, the privacy our privacy legislation fit with uh, with the internet? Where where is the, the intersection? Our legislation is similar to a few other jurisdictions. We generally copied it from the Canadian law to some degree. Um, it compared to other jurisdictions, ours is more of a response at times rather than an actual um, action to maintain privacy. Um, there is a need to notify um, the commissioner if there is a, a privacy breach, um, but the the fines and there is there is a fine um, a fine there if a breach does take place. But it's frankly kind of small ten thousand dollars maximum fine is what the allowance is. Which in in modern modern worlds, if you're a Facebook or a you know that's 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 nothing. That's not worth worth going to court for. Yeah. Um, so the when they did bring through the changes a couple of years ago with the new act, um, everyone did sort of see that as being a bit of a, a bit of a wet bus ticket sort of approach to, to how we deal with it. It also does yeah, emphasise on the reporting of the breach rather than perhaps the breach itself being an offence. Um, it could be seen as an offence if you were sort of being a blasé as to how the, the privacy took place, but the focus is on after the breach rather than before the breach. Yeah, and, and one area of that is, for example, if you're, if you're maintaining a computer system and it's got private data on there, information about individuals, so look, it might even just be a, look, let's use a real simple example, a marketing mailing list. Um, if someone hacks into your system, that's going to trigger an obligation under the Privacy Act to report to the Privacy Commissioner that you, your, your, your IT system's been compromised, someone's had access to your... Uh, to it, and there's private, private personal information sitting on there. Uh, this is what's happened. Yeah, that's a that's an example, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. well, there's a, there's a small fine there. the The biggest detriment it's going to be is that once you've reported to the commissioner, you have to then report to the users who are impacted if it meets the threshold for, mm. for, for harm. Um, if you were if it was sort of very minor data, uh, just a, a list of email addresses, the commissioner might say actually that's not really going to meet that threshold for harm. The, information is probably relatively public. If it was dealing with more private information, then you're going to have to go to all those people who were impacted and say, hey, we, we have had a breach and this information has been taken. If you can't tell what was taken, but merely you had a breach, you go to all your clients and say, we've had a breach. We can't tell what's gone out, but all of you may be impact impacted. So there's reputational 
Yeah, that could be quite embarrassing there. for an organisation. Very much so. Yeah. Um, for a law firm, it would be devastating. Yeah. And that, that's a, a big fear of ours, being you know, very secure in what we have in our systems. Right, okay. Well, well absolutely, of course, and, you know, and the internet uh, makes that information, you know, obviously behind firewalls, but, you know, there, there is that information there. I mean, you know, we've gone through, I mean, we're still in a, arguably in a pandemic, you know, the, this whole work from home. Um, lawyers have had to become more remote digital nomads, uh, and, of course, the, it's taking it from the, you know, from the bricks and mortar walls of the law firm out into the, to, to the wider environment, and those risks start multiplying. No, lawyers are a honeypot. Yep. We, we are an ultimate target. You go into our systems, no matter how the size of the firm, you're in there, you will have bank information. In there, you will have, well, even just, um, as I said, when we're doing a payment for, for a, a client, we may have a history of going to a certain account, but if someone goes and changes, changes their history in our systems to, to something else, we can't tell they've changed that, uh, that account number. We yeah. make a payment to the wrong account because that's what matches our systems. Yeah. And somebody else has money. It's it's too easy for it's too easy for us not to be able to see these things. So mm-hmm. um the same with most firms, there'd be some element of of risk there. And while the fine is small, I think the fine should be should be a lot higher um, for situations where there is no monetary loss to somebody, but there's personal loss of information. Um, the reputational loss can be significant and it will destroy a lot of companies. Uh, as we saw it with the um no, there's attacks constantly to the places. DHB got attacked, you know, and yeah. that was locked, but it was still um, significant damage to, to people who who use that system. Mm. Now, or staying on the topic of privacy, um, just as a last part to that, the internet, the right to be forgotten. Okay? Um, you mentioned before that you say to clients, and it and it's true. I mean, it's good advice. Um, you know, once something's on the internet, unless the person who who's controlling that content voluntarily takes it down, maybe under compulsion of a court order, but takes it down, um, it's there. Um, where does the, the right to be forgotten come into play? Is there such a right? There is a right for that in Europe, um, but not in New Zealand. Um, we have seen, we have actually tried to um, act for a client previously, trying to go down that pathway where there'd been articles about her um, charges against her, those charges weren't found. But we did go to the various publishers and say, hey, these, you know, this, these articles, if you Google our client's name, these articles come up and they make some allegations against her. The courts found there was no charges there to be heard. But the media does have the exemption that that actually was, they were, we were reporting the truth at the time. Those mm-hmm. allegations were made, the article was there. Um, when it comes to actual court decisions, there is an allowance uh, for those publications, those decisions to be published as long as they're not suppressed, and that to not being a breach of anyone, anybody's rights to publish those, those decisions. So under New Zealand law as it stands, there is no right to be forgotten when it comes to at least to convictions. Yep, and, and look, it's, it's a difficult area, um, particularly when uh, there's, I guess, a media report that paints a, you know, a subject an individual or a business quite negatively, and, and of course that can be there for a long time. Um, one angle that I've had clients take, which has had mixed success, is to say at some point in time, um, those posts, if I call them posts or publications, become a little bit misleading and deceptive because time has moved on, um, and uh, by putting it there, even though you say the date is 2005, um, uh, anyone reading it could think, well, it's actually something that's that, that's more current and relevant. 
So as I say, had a little bit of mixed success with with that approach. That approach. Right. Um, final developments, more probably technical. Let's talk about artificial intelligence, AI, and the law, and and maybe the the area that might have some lawyers feeling a little bit anxious is, hey, uh, are we all going to be made redundant or are we all going to be looking forward to spending more time on the beach? Um, Is AI going to replace us? What's your thoughts? I think in the short term, no. Um, So in the next year or two, no, I think it is still something that we're going to learn how to to trust and use it correctly. Um, I think within the next sort of four to five years, we're going to see a lot fewer juniors. yeah, a lot of more of the work being automated um, already is now when it comes to more general stuff. Uh, things like conveyancing will, I think, eventually leave part of the legal profession and will become an online service that you can do yourself with AI. Yeah. Um, when we get to sort of 10, 15 years now, and I actually had a good discussion about this about three years ago with uh, Judge Harvey, who mentioned his book earlier on. We had a discussion um, over using AI to determine what a court does. And this was before we saw generative AI. We were sort of thinking like sort of 10, 15 years out, not like mm. right now. And our thoughts were that if you gave an AI who could understand um, text, as we can see with this, this language modeling, um, the decisions, that AI should be able to actually go through and decide what the outcome should be. And his thinking was that um, we would get to the point first where the court would use that to advise the judge. Then the court would move to the point where the AI would provide it and the judge would check it. Mm. And then move more and more towards the AI just doing that job because the AI can do it so much better than a judge could do. They could review the decisions and they could be prevented from showing bias. Uh, we know that the courts can be biased against certain people, um, ethnicities, that sort of thing, backgrounds. And this would remove that. Um, the other scary part from you know, being... Uh, law geeks as we are, mm. is that if we put these decisions through the AI, they're going to point out where there was bias. And that's going to create an absolute mess with the courts when the AI goes, hey, this decision here was actually wrong. Because it was, it was inconsistent with, with everything with, else. Yeah, Apart right. from the fact this yeah. person may have been a certain ethnicity yeah. or um, a certain gender or a certain identity. Mm. Um, and that's what AI is going to provide. So, or showing patterns. Exactly. That, that provides some um, quantitative uh, evidence of bias. Yep. Yeah. This judge in that situation, on perhaps not even on that day of the week or yeah. that part of the year, mm. was biased in this direction year after year on this situation. So AI is going to create, um, well, if a lot, lot fewer lawyers, um, hopefully a lot fairer courts. Um, and hopefully it will also provide greater access to to, to the law that most people haven't got now. You won't mm-hmm. require to go and pay lots of money to a lawyer to do a long job. Uh, it could be done a lot faster. Like s- s- simple templated documents, you know, for example, a will, you know, where, which, which doesn't require a massive amount of customization. AI is going to be able to produce at least a reasonably good first cut. Um, exactly. That you won't have to pay for, which you would have had to in the past. So... From the, I mean, from the technical point of view, I mean, we we AI still got a long way to go before it's that full concept that uh, AI could replace, you know, large aspects of what we do as lawyers. Because if if we look at the technology, um, we've been using, for example, Google, and we've been using legal databases for a decade, you know, a couple of decades now, and. It, it's been operating a, an algorithm-based type technology. 
Um, the advancement with AI is just taking that a little bit further where the algorithms are becoming more um, sophisticated of going, well, we'll apply predictive um, uh, percentages that when someone uses a certain sequence of words, then it's likely that the that the next sequence will be this in most instances. And that's where AI is is at. It hasn't got down to a more granular level, but that'll probably come. When um, uh, the systems are able to go, not only is the percentages that those words are most likely that, but then if we apply other variables like, for example, rebuttal arguments, or um, you know where we've had cases that have been inconsistent, these are the factors that were put in place to de- determine outcomes one way or another. We're not there yet, but that's not far away. That's on its way. It's not far away. I think even a year ago, look at how we talked about AI. Mm. We're still talking, you know, years out. Um, and then we've seen this massive growth in six months where we've gone from things that were initially, oh, that's kind of cool. We saw, I saw GPT-3 probably about a year, a year and a bit ago. Um, mm. We got access to that um, before it was public. And well, this is like, we, we asked it, um, the guy showed it to me said, oh, explain to a, um, a five-year-old the Consumer Guarantees Act. Yeah. And this provided a, a cleanly, simply worded thing about, imagine you had a toy car and it broke. Yeah. And that was, it worked perfectly and it fit the situation. And this could take in this bit of legislation and provide a, a good example of it. Now, that was a year and a half ago and things have gone up you know, astronomically and how fast things, things have gone. Um, I mean, the, the, the accuracy is going to get better and better in, in terms of, being able to provide an accurate response to a to a query, it's getting better at understanding what it's reading. Yeah, um, there is times that it will go and make things up to try and answer the question. Uh, it's getting better at not doing that, um, but it is going to provide a faster, quicker solution than what can be done now. Yeah, um, and and be able to like we have a gut feeling as lawyers. Uh, you and I will read something. We'll go, oh, our gut feeling is this, and we know that gut feeling is based on years of experience. Mm. We, we could probably spend. Know, then spend a week sort of justifying what our gut feeling is. I can do it straight away. It can say, this is my gut feeling and here's all the reasons why, mm. straight away. And what you and I would take, you know, the gut feeling we can do in a second, but the justification takes a week, they could do both in a second. Yeah, And that's where yeah. our, our jobs, for us, probably come easier because we're sort of expert level. Mm. But as you go down into to the more junior, junior levels, those parts get replaced. Oh, well, look, absolutely. So uh, I've got to write some submissions this week um, looking at uh, – quite an interesting area to do with um, the intersection between legal aid and contingency arrangements. And, uh, and I, need to, I need to get my head around where the case law is here in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, possibly Canada. Now, traditionally, um, I would ask a law clerk to go ahead and do that. I'd frame up the issue and, and say, these are the areas that I want you to look at. Or I might even ask the uh, the the law society's library staff, who by the way do an amazing job, use them for ten years. I mean, just every day, just um, perform and and produce the most amazing research. But their roles are the ones that are going to be at risk because the AI, if you frame it in the right way, is going to be able to to a find um, uh, that law whether it's at legislative level, through to case law, secondary legislation, et cetera, summarise it in, an, in, a, in a very efficient way to then allow the likes of you and I at our level to go, okay, 
well, that's the existing base of law that we've got to deal with. How do we now apply that to the facts and the argument that we're wanting to put forward to the court? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's when we get to the point, I think we're getting close to it, when AI, like as humans, we will be able to again, have that gut reaction as to when things aren't quite right, when they're slightly mm. off. And AI using those percentages will start looking at these things and going, well, that one there looks like an, a, a, it's wrong. So I can say, look, you know, here's 100 decisions about this area or go find them for me in the first place. Then we know the ones where something wasn't quite right. Yeah. Or there was an argument which seemed to have a, a better chance of success. Mm. And then we have our arguments for us. And we can say, well, take those arguments. Here's, here's, here's our situation. Draft them for my submissions. The yeah. job is done. Well, well, well look, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then there's sort of that sort of real grinding analysis work that, um, I mean, because I'm a litigator, so often you're reading briefs of evidence and sometimes you're, you're reading an expert's brief and you might say to yourself, well, okay, um, uh, wouldn't it be handy if I, if, if I had the resources and the time to be able to compare what this expert, who I know has given evidence on, on scores of occasions on similar topics, whether there's any inconsistency in his or her brief in this case compared to previous cases so that I can identify that and say, well, hold on, here's a, here's a potential angle to say, yeah, but in previous cases you were supportive of this argument or you, you weren't. Um, but that traditionally has taken someone to sit down and, and painfully read a large amount of information to, to, to often not come up with anything positive. AI is going to do that in a nanosecond uh, and, and say to you whether there is an angle there or not and what that angle might look like. Exactly, and that's going to open up the floodgates for every yes. decision where that, that was based on in the past. Um, yeah. As you as you see, yeah, as you say, these these experts not always they sometimes do sort of tailor their their opinion for the situation for the client. Well, that sounds very cynical. <laughs> um, I know it might few, be quite true, but I'm I, just saying it's quite cynical. <laughs> I know a few experts who wouldn't do that, but I know one or two I've met, and I'm sitting there going, "Well, that no, I think you're you're, you're using your words very carefully." Mm. Um, and then you'd find that. Um, and as you said, AI could do that very quickly, much faster than we can because it's just throwing around words. Yeah, yeah, it is. Look, um, Aaron Hunt, absolutely fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot in this. I mean, there's so much more there, uh, but I've got a lot out of it. So I just want to say thank you for joining me on the Law Down Under podcast. Um, thoroughly insightful and interesting discussion. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application, and the future of the law here down under.